You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends. Well, our uh, Aussie season continues with an incredible guest today, Dr. Wes Beavis. Uh, Wes is coming on the show to talk very specifically, and I think as you listen in very profoundly about ministry burnout, what it is, the signs of it, and most importantly, how to prevent it and how to get help if you're in it or or through the other side. Uh, this topic, ministry burnout, is Wes's expertise. His book is actually called Let's Talk About Ministry Burnout. Uh, I'm going to put a link to the book and Wes's website in the show notes. You can get him at drwesbeavis.com. Interesting thing about Wes, you know, people often with Aussies, they think we all know each other. And what's pretty freakish is when you're in a particular stream of churches and an Aussie, you actually do know of each other at least. And I've known of Wes since I was a teenager, actually just a year or two after I came to Christ. I remember going to a concert at the Whitford's Church of Christ in Perth, and this rap uh, performer was doing a concert, and it was Wes Beavis. His dad, as it turns out, was one of the former ministers at the church where I came to Christ. And so Wes comes from a ministry family. He has been in the local church ministry for decades. He's planted a church. He's been a university professor. And uh, he most recently got his doctorate from the Chicago School of Psychology, uh, applied clinical psychology. Wes himself is a therapist. He has a private practice in California, but he's also available for anyone in ministry through Zoom and Skype. Um, He's the guy to go to when you're in ministry and you're needing help. You can go on his website. Uh, Again, the link will be on the show notes and you can actually take take a burnout assessment Wes's PhD was in burnout for people in ministry. This is his field. This is his expertise. So we start by talking about burnout. And then as you listen, Wes gets, I think, delightfully and helpfully personal, sharing some of his own stories and, of course, surviving uh, and thriving through my uh, gauntlet of anxiety questions. Here's the interview now. You know, you, you did your doctorate. Uh, and your dissertation on people in ministry and burnout. And then you actually recently released a book, really, that's more accessible for all of us on this very topic of ministry burnout. I think we're seeing this is a, a rampant plague right now. Could we just start by you defining burnout for us? Burnout is a debilitating condition that erodes a pastor's energy levels, confidence, and ministry effectiveness. And is it possible, in your opinion, for a, a pastor to go through decades of ministry and not have to deal with either burnout or approaching burnout? Like, can somebody ever be above it or is a threat to every one of us in ministry? Well, Steve, if I could just come from a little bit of history with me, um, my first two ministries, and this is how I actually ended up becoming uh, somewhat of a specialist in this field, is that my first ministry was tremendously successful and uh, exhilarating. Um, my second ministry uh, was uh, here in the United States. My first one was in Australia, and it was just as uh, as exhilarating. It, it uh, goals were being exceeded, and uh, people were coming to Christ. Um, 
church was growing, lots of great things happening. And so I just thought that that's how how ministry happens. Excuse me. Uh, I just thought that's how ministry happens. Uh, you just, you give it everything you've got and uh, and then there's a great harvest. And then my wife and I had this idea of uh, let's take what we've learned, let's take our experience and uh, let's go plant a church. And that was the beginning of my journey of realizing that I was not in any way special, that I was not in any way impervious to the normal uh, experience of people and capacity to burn out. Uh, I have a saying, Steve, um, you've got to, uh, it's, it's important to lead with, with purpose. It's important to lead with passion. But if you don't lead with well-being, your purpose and your passion will drive you into burnout. And that was certainly my, my experience. I just, you know, I would take the great uh, verses of scripture, you know, do, do not become weary of doing good because at a proper time you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so, you know, whenever a warning light would come up on my dashboard saying, you know, uh, uh, we've, we stop and check your engine, I would just tape that Bible <laughs> verse over it, you know, that, and I can do all things through Christ and strengthens me. And and I learned that, yes, I can do all things, uh, including drive myself into a state of burnout uh, by overriding these signals and mechanisms that God put in place to warn me that I needed to make adjustments. And so uh, having had that really traumatic experience, it was uh, certainly an existential crisis. Um, it really challenged everything from my theology, my view of God, uh, you know, how he, he responds to his servants. Um, and uh, so I went on this really long journey uh, that led me back to graduate school. Uh, I ended up getting my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. That helped me to understand the systems component of, of churches and families. And, you know, ultimately churches can be just one big extension of your family. Um and then uh, I was uh, compelled to go on and do my doctorate. And uh, even though I did my doctorate at a secular psychology school, they were quite open to me studying the subject of, of ministry leaders as it relates to stress and burnout. And so I spent eight years doing that, becoming uh, somewhat uh, qualified to be able to research and be a spokesperson on the subject. Yeah, qualified from personal experience and qualified from study. Let, let's um, let's go back to that church planting era, Wes. I, I do find it fascinating, you know, when a young leader has some upfront gifts and some leadership gifts and then some early success. It can be pretty brutal the first time they hit a brick wall. Could could you just give us a narrative around you're, you're planting that church, it's the first time there's been a significant struggle where things aren't, you know, really flying well. What was going on in your inner world? Well, from a clinical perspective, I was becoming aware of my narcissism. <laughs> okay. Because, um, you know, Steve, I, I thought I was, I thought I was pretty special. Yeah. No, I, I'd had, you know, a, as evidenced by the fruit, you know, I would exercise my spiritual gifts and the church would grow. And so in the case of planting the church, I was not only exercising my spiritual gifts, but I was leveraging every, every talent, 
every resource that I could have. And I was not experiencing the same level anywhere near the level of fruit. And it was just so disheartening, you know, and I happened to be planting a church in an area where there's some really huge churches and, uh, you know, your, your mind starts to mess with you once you're in the uh, latter stages of burnout, mid to latter stages of burnout, and you start asking really spurious questions, you know, like, you know, is, is God so busy blessing Rick Warren and, and keeping up with what Rick Warren's doing that he's kind of forgotten that I'm over here trying to build the kingdom too? And of course, that is so erroneous at, at many levels. But, you know, when you're burned out, you start to think, you know, does, you know, I know God loves me because he, he says he loves me, but I'm not sure that he really likes me. You know, is, is he a little bit embarrassed that, you know, I've, I'm starting a work in his name and it's not successful? And of course, that is all the product, the outworking of somebody who's experiencing uh, the latter stages of burnout. Yeah, and as you mentioned the latter stages, you've actually identified six stages of burnout. Would you mind just walking us through those six? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Three of the stages are common uh, and, and borrowed, if you will, from the burnout literature and studies that have been done of, you know, people helping professions right across the board. And the first one is emotional exhaustion. And it's one that, that pastors, it's the first stage of pastor burnout. It's the first stage of uh, uh, any professional burnout. Um, it's that place where you're just um, so so depleted, you can't think straight. You're Now, uh, does that mean you're burned out? No, no, that's, that's just a symptom. And it's the initial symptom. And it's, uh, it's there to be, to be listened to, it's there as a warning signal. Um, but I did, as well as so many other pastors, um, just kind of ignore it and spiritualize it. You know, I'm under attack. Um, and and then there's a whole lot of platitudes that Christians use, you know, that I'm, I'm not sure... Uh, that firmly rooted in the Bible, I, maybe, maybe not. But you know, it's always darkest before the dawn, and you know, the, you know, God is a God of the you know eleventh hour. He will you know exhaust your resources, and then he'll come through, um, you know, and display his glory. And you know, all of that stuff was um, really not helpful at that time, um, and. Uh, because uh, because you're experiencing a, a sense of shame, and and so you move into a second stage, which um, you start to think negatively. Um, not only do you think negatively, but you're thinking it. You're in that space more frequently and for a longer duration. So you know a normal. A normal person's, a normal ministry leader's experience, a normal leader's experience is to, you know, be thinking positively most of the time, but, you know, have a few few uh, uh, moments of negative thinking, few, maybe a season of, of feeling negative. But, but there's a point where it flips, where you're, you're actually more in the negative space with the occasional seeing the sunlight but mostly in a negative space. And, and that becomes the, you know, the deterioration of your thinking, that part of your, 
your brain starts to shut down. You move into um, uh, the third stage, which is um, you're being more influenced by depression, anxiety, uh, panic, um, and uh, you you lose resiliency. Things that you once were able to handle uh, in ministry really get to you. I, I remember one pastor that I was counseling came in. He said, I, I've come to see you because um, I'm, I'm manifesting behaviors, particularly anger, that is so not like me. He said, like, I had somebody in my church come with a, you know, you know, a difficult thing, but it was a relatively, you know, small thing. But he said, I almost bit their head off. And he said, well, it's certainly, um, it's not me. And uh, it's certainly not like Christ. And so your resiliency, you know, so you've got more emotional instability happening in a depression setting, in anxiety, and then you have um, a loss of resiliency, a loss of personal disciplines. That's when you're, um, your exercise regime goes out the window. It's when you start gaining weight. It's when you start medicating yourself with chips and salsa. Not that there's anything wrong with chips and salsa, but when you make it a medication, uh, it can be problematic. Uh, and, and it's also, you know, the discipline slip is manifest in uh, what you're looking at online, what you're clicking around with. You know, normal firewalls that have been there are uh, uh, have, have become... Uh, no longer impervious and you start, you know, crossing into gray areas. You lose that discipline of your internet behavior. So, uh, and then you move into uh, the next stage, uh, not wanting to be around people. That's common with other helping professions, you know, isolation. Uh, The great biblical example of that is Elijah, you know, after he'd had a, a great, you know, outpouring of emotional energy, uh, he experienced an anxiety episode, which drove him into the back of a cave, uh, fully isolated from anyone. Um, and then at number five, the fifth stage is is um, diminished work effectiveness, and it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, when you are um, when you're emotionally exhausted, uh, when you're thinking more negatively, when you're not feeling great about yourself, your disciplines have slipped, your emotional stability is all over the place, um, you're, you're not wanting to be around people. Well, as a pastor, you're not going to be effective when you're manifesting all those symptoms. And then finally, um, the sixth stage, which is the most insidious stage, is when you start questioning, uh, existentially questioning, um, you know, the meaning of life, uh, your call to ministry, um, you're, you're asking questions like, uh, what, well, you're, te- you're telling yourself, you've got inward conversations. I'm a failure. Who would want me if the church knew, you know, what I was thinking right now, they would fire me on the spot. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't know where God is. Um, I don't think God particularly cares for me or likes me, you know? So at that point you're thinking, oh, all, all those, that type of thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's an identity impairment and it's a, a, a complete uh, loss of confidence of who you are in Christ. And you'd, you'd ask yourself, that, well, how does a pastor, you know, think those thoughts? Well, when you, when you understand it through a clinical lens, 
the part of the brain that is responsible for a higher order executive functioning has shut down by that point. You've retreated into your limbic system. Your threat detector is on high alert, but your uh, ability to be able to uh, look at situations and understand the nuance of the situations, uh, your ability to be able to examine uh, behaviors in the light of possible consequences, all that part of the brain is shut down. And so, St- Steve, you and I have, you know, unfortunately have seen, you know, great pastors do really boneheaded things. And we go, you know, how on earth is a, as a, you know, a, a person of God, capable of thinking that or even doing that. Well, the part of the brain that examines uh, behaviors in light of consequences has been impaired um, so dramatically at that point, like half the brain is shut down. And so with that uh, being the neurological experience, then, yeah, weird things happen. And, uh, um, and pastors in, in my clinical experience. I've, I've proven this with 100% certainty. And, and I, I, will, I will argue with anybody on this, this uh, reality and this discovery. Pastors are 100% human. Therefore, they are susceptible to the range of human experience. I, I love that, that you declared that because I, I can't tell you how many pastor conferences I attended long time ago now, 10, 15 years ago, where they make it sound like we're a different species than the congregation we're leading, as if the congregation is sheep and we are some kind of beyond sheep. But yeah, if you if you cut me and send my blood work to the lab, I'm going to come back as exactly human-sized. Mm. It, it, it's interesting, Steve, because, because ministry um, can really play into the development of a success-induced narcissism. You know, what, what are, when you think of it, what other um, professions, I know there probably are a few, but, but where you are able to get up once a week, stand before hundreds, sometimes thousands of people, and have people sitting on the edge of their chairs, listening to every word, and then afterwards, if, you know, if you're not tucked away in the safety of a green room um, and out there mixing it up with your people, you are just hearing affirmation after affirmation and, and it, it feeds this sense that, you know, you're, you're special. And, you know, the, and, and, it, and it's insidious when a pastor starts to think, well, you know, I've got so many people thinking I, you know, that God speaks through me. And that, you know, I touch their lives with, you know, the, the, uh, the words that I bring, um, that they start to think, well, maybe the rules don't apply. Yeah, like a sense maybe, of entitlement. Maybe the rules. Yeah. Hmm, yeah, absolutely. The, the normal rules don't apply to me. And that's why we have, you know, and I'm not going to mention any names. Um, you know, we've had some really formidable people in the United States who, who have had um, after decades of incredible successful ministry, um, find themselves in a moral predicament uh, because they felt that they, I guess, felt that there was um, perhaps not a, an accountability level where anybody was in their life 
that was that was going to ask them the the hard questions. Um, certainly, you know, the the more successful you are, the more you're surrounded by people who are who are your fans um, and devotees. Um, and sometimes sometimes pastors can can step into the fire or get so close to the fire, and uh, because I uh, because they've got that uh, they're experiencing that success-induced narcissism that just gives them that little sense that, yeah, maybe the, the normal rules don't apply. You know, I'd like to get your take on this too, Wes. I think the other side, I mean, first of all, I think absolutely what you, what you just said, the idea that you can get on a stage, open the Bible, and have the audacity to so-called speak for God, that is a deadly, uh, that can be deadly on the soul, the two areas I'd like to take this and get your take on is one is when the pastor's faith starts shifting and their private faith is there's a growing gap between their private faith and their public proclamation of the faith. Yeah, I'm sure you've run into that. What's a pastor to do when their own faith is going under a shift but they feel obligated to represent the cause? What's happening is they're becoming unintegrated. And inevitably, there is a bill to pay for that. You will pay. When you become incongruent, when your private experience of faith is, is becoming estranged from your public presentation of faith. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, I mean, sometimes I, I've been a pastor for decades. I, I know what it is to step up and to uh, bring a message and, and you're not feeling it. Um, because of, you know, what you're going through, but you just, you know, at that point you defer to the word of God and the authority of the word of God. And, and you just, um, for the moment, you're not allowing yourself to be driven by where you may be at personally at that point. Um, that's one thing. And, and that's okay. As, as long as it doesn't become the trajectory where you are, present, you know, the, the trajectory that ends up where you're uh, projecting something that ultimately is not a representation of what you're experiencing personally. And my experience, uh, because I, you know, I specialize in the mental health and well-being of pastors, when a pastor comes to my clinical office, uh, generally um, it's, you know, they come not to tell me things are going really well. It's because something, some crisis has erupted. And often it comes back to the fact that they, there was this, this um, separation, this lack of integration of their personal experience of faith and their public presentation of faith. And, and, and it's hard too, because, you know, we have, you know, a, a lot of people that come on Sundays and, and they're wanting us to be the example that the product works. And so we feel that pressure that, you know, I've, I, you know, regardless of what I may be feeling internally, I've got to be the shining example that this stuff works. And uh, I, 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 a pastor can only do that for so long. That's been becoming incongruent. It's not the way God wired us up to live. And when we carry on in that way, eventually something gives. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say, I, I think for pastors who may be hearing this, I think you're giving us such a good word. And I just wish to add that I think your average pastor would be surprised that when you share some of this with your congregation, how much it will help them. 
when you, when you disown the idea that you're the shining example and rather you're mm. just, you know, you're pointing to God and, and sharing your own doubts appropriately, of course, you're not vomiting on the people, but um, because the people in your church have doubts too. And if, if you can be the example that way as a, someone who's hungry for God rather than this idealized version, it takes a tremendous amount of pressure. Oh, it, it is a bridge builder. Steve, you're, you're 100% accurate on that, is that, you know, when, when people see us as human, uh, it, it tightens up the gap between us. When, when we present ourselves as superhuman, it, I, I think it sets up an, an anxiety in, in the congregation because yeah. they go, oh, my goodness, I don't think I can ever get to, you I'll, know. I'll never be that. Way. Yeah. Yeah, I'll never, I'm not spiritual enough. And the other, the other direction I wanted to take this was I, I was listening to you and just uh, what went through in my mind is that pull to narcissism on one side, that's a real pressure that I think we have to battle. But you just mentioned offhand, and and I, I know what you're referring to. You said, you know, if a pastor isn't hiding in the green room and they're actually out among their people, what went through my mind is last Sunday, where I'm standing in the back worshiping during the worship, the music time. I'm about to get up to preach, and a, a dear man in the church who I love just taps me on the shoulder as he's coming in, and he just says as he's walking by, "I have bladder cancer." And then he kept walking like it was nothing, like he just told me the time. Mm. And I had to chase him down and I grab him and we just have a moment to pray together. And then after the service, I grabbed him and we chatted. But also after the service, someone came down front because their brother is drinking himself to death and what, you know, what resources does the church have and can we pray? And I think the other pressure, Wes, is any one of these situations, if I wasn't a pastor, would would probably rock me just as an everyday citizen that... Somebody I know and love has cancer and that somebody I, I know their brother is drinking themselves to death unless someone helps. But there is something about being on church staff where you can, if you're not careful, you can get numb to the weight of human pain mm. or the other side is you can feel it too deeply. Could you talk to us about that? What's your take on that? Oh, absolutely. And in my book, Let's Talk About Ministry Burnout, uh, I address this very issue. And um, it's, it's where, you know, stage one, the, the first symptom, emotional exhaustion, um, ministry it will provide ample opportunity for you to become emotionally exhausted if you maintain connection with your people. Now, I know that it's curious to me that you would think that personality temperament that would be most represented in pastors would be extroversion. Drawn to people, we like to minister to people, we, you know, we're energized being around people. But the statistics, the data shows that most pastors, and in fact, one, uh, one study with over uh, 3,000 clergy indicated that 62% of all pastors are introverts. So that to me says that 62% of all pastors would much rather hang out in the green room, you know, come out to stage once the, and, and I see this and, and, and I still can't quite wrap my head around it, but I can understand it from a, you know, from a neurological, psychological perspective. But some pastors don't come out until halfway through worship because they want the auditorium to be full. 
And then once they're done ministering, given the altar call of what, uh, however, you know, traditionally they do things, then they just make their way back into the green room. And then some have a special exit from the green room straight to their car and and they are able to come and engage people in a proclamation level, but never actually be in a situation like you were, where somebody had within the congregation had access to come and just unload that on you. So there is, there's a continuum, there's a, there's a spectrum here. And I learned this in my, in my clinical uh, doctoral uh, work, where you can be uh, detached and preserve your emotional energy. That is the pastor that, you know, comes out of the green room, preaches, goes back into the green room, into car, drives home. Or you can have the pastor that is the first to arrive, meets everybody as they come, hears everybody's story, gets up, preaches, goes to, you know, as people are leaving, uh, they're listening, to, you know, getting an update on every family's life, at least the ones that they talk to. Um, and and that is just, uh, you know, an opportunity for you to be so in that, uh, you know, that the, the level of drain from your, from your uh, emotional fuel tank is very high. So I didn't learn this until I was doing my clinical studies as a uh, uh, doctor of psychology. They said you, and they talked about having both feet in and both feet out. And they said, you can't be both feet out as a clinician because people will sense your detachment. Yeah. And, and they, you won't be able to engage them empathetically and, and people know it. And people may play the role, but at the end of the day, they're not going to come back to you because they just feel the coldness. So it's both feet out. Both feet in is the other end of the spectrum. And that is where you are so involved um, almost enmeshed with everybody's life and you feel as deeply as their family members and you are in it with them every step of the way and you're, you're really, you, you insert yourself, you know, especially when they're going through a crisis, you insert yourself as a, you know, systemically as a member of the family. And, you know, my, my, doctoral professors said that's what's being both feet in. And the problem with that is that you, you start to lose objectivity. And when you lose objectivity, then you become, then you lose your capacity to be able to engage them in a healthy way. And so they were, they were continually, I remember one professor in particular saying, you've just got to be one foot out, one foot in, one foot in, one foot out at all times, sometimes shifting your weight, to the one foot in, sometimes shifting your weight to the one foot out. And, and some people would think, well, you know, isn't that being half committed? And I would say, no, that is, that is, being, that is being appropriately committed for the sake of them and for the sake of your longevity in the, in the vocation that you've been called to. Uh, case in point, you and I have flown enough on airplanes. We know the... Uh, uh, the drill, you know, put the oxygen, if you're traveling with, uh, with children, put the oxygen mask on yourself before uh, giving it to them. Um, it, it's in the theme of that. You know, the reason why we put the oxygen on ourselves, because very quickly our brain becomes oxygen starved and then we become disoriented. And so I think when we are so both feet in, 
and not tending to our own emotional needs and filling up our emotional tanks, putting our needs, our self-care at the, you know, at the end of the priority list, when we're both feet in, we can, we put ourselves in the potential of becoming disoriented. And once you become disoriented, you know, you're, that's going to impact your relationship with your family, your spouse, um, the other church members. Um, so, it's it's a harder place to be the one foot in one foot out but it it you know if we want to go the distance in 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 working with people we just have to be comfortable with that and give ourselves permission that that is the appropriate stance to be in yeah it's so good Wes. i want to i want to try something with you um you you mentioned when when the 3000 pastors were surveyed 62% uh, introvert in my experience, maybe uh, I didn't know myself when I was younger, and I know myself much better now, but I would have described myself in my 20s as very extroverted. The longer I'm a lead pastor, the more introverted I'm becoming. Um, and and this, this whole green room idea and this hiding idea, what I don't think pastors talk about enough is, is um, the social anxiety that grows the longer you're in ministry. This has really caught me off guard. It used to be, even when I was a lead pastor in my church, I could walk into a room at, at like a party where there's church people there, be completely fine. And and I, maybe this is a sign of burnout or emotional health, but I went through quite a phase where I had to kind of psych myself up to walk into that environment. And I think what it is, I'd like to get your take on this. I think a, a communicating pastor, a preacher, gets conditioned by the public performance to where you're not quite sure how to be yourself off the stage with the people that listen to you on a stage. I, I don't think I'm being very succinct about it, but if you run into like this social anxiety with gifted communicators that when they're just having a one-on-one -on -one with people, it takes more effort than it used to before as a pastor. Does that make sense? Oh, Steve, it it, it does. And it can be an indicator that you're on a burnout trajectory, but it could also just be an indicator that you're human. Sure, yeah. And so, you know, it's always good to, and that's something that I want to advocate at some point through this, is for, is for pastors to, to have somebody in their lives, um, like a Dr. Wes Beavis, who that they uh, come and see on a regular basis and just process this stuff. Because we're, we're really not, great at self-diagnosing. You know, I, I think somebody said it uh, this way. It's hard to read the label when you're stuck inside the bottle. Mm, that's good. And so if you can, if, if you can find somebody who is, has got some clinical training that understands, you know, not only, you know, the theological and the ministry aspects and what it is to be a ministry leader, but also uh, has an understanding of what's happening in your brain neurologically at that point. You know, Steve, there are there are a lot of pastors that I counsel that uh, you know take lorazepam, you know, anti-anxiety medication, and they just take it, you know, half a tablet on Sundays, just Sunday morning before they go in, just to take the 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 edge of of uh, social anxiety off, and uh, and that's. You know, I, I believe in psychotropic medication. I believe it has a place. I believe also that psychotropic medication can be uh, uh, prescribed 
um, when it's to, to cover up something that is more of a root cause that needs to be addressed. So you can stay on medication, you can stay on Ambien, Ativan, you know, and, and not actually address the internal core issue that's causing you anxiety. But yes, I, 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 counsel, I counsel many pastors who, uh, ha- who are on medication just for that purpose. Yeah, and I, I think also um, it, it's also just the drastically different skill set required. I've really tried to analyze what it is because I was quite caught off guard. It was eight or ten years ago when I'm like, why am I afraid of walking into this room or why am I afraid of preaching and then coming down front and being ready to listen to people one-on-one? And in, in a related topic, um, when we were smaller, it was usually me and our worship leader that managed the announcements and we'd always like – rock, paper, scissors on who had to do it. And he would make the case, and he's not wrong. He said, look, you know, going from being artistic and musical, that skill set, to suddenly at the end of a song becoming a speaker is a big shift. It's very difficult to do, to have a guitar and lead people in this musical experience and then suddenly become like the MC. Therefore, he's saying, you know, you should do them. (laughs) And I think it's the same gap. I think the skill of getting up in front of a crowd, uh, doing what many people say is one of the top fears in their life, public speaking. Mm -hmm. Modern preaching is a vulnerable experience. We most powerful preaching nowadays is self-revealing. And I think the challenge is then once you've done that, getting down on the floor and being having the emotional and the mental capacity, having just poured yourself out to be able to fully connect with people. I think that's part of what's generated it for me. Oh, absolutely. Brene Brown, who um, is amazingly well, intelligent. the boss, really. Yes. She's the boss. Yes. Yeah. Intelligent and articulate. Um, uh, she calls it a vulnerability hangover. And I, I think pastors, uh, you know, especially after, after preaching, after, you know, bringing a message, after being so transparent, you know, you, you are having a vulnerability hangover. You know, I often, uh, when I'm speaking uh, at churches and, and uh, business organizations, uh, I, I say, I can guarantee after I'm done speaking, I'm going to come away from here and I'm going to have these three questions in my mind. What didn't I say that I wished I had said. <laughs> yes. What did I say that I wished I hadn't said? Yeah. And three, did people like what I presented? Yeah. And I, I think that pastors and ministry leaders are, are in that space. It's like they've got, um, they've had a, a great outpouring. Their, uh, um, their emotional fuel tank is low. If they've done, if you've done your job, yeah, you know, right. one, one, you know, having at least one foot in when you're ministering um, at that level, then there's going to be a drain. And so there is that um, apprehension, that vulnerability hangover, getting out, being with people, um, because there's there's the very real potential not only of good news but of bad news. You know, somebody, yeah. somebody saying something that troubles your spirit. You know, maybe saying, yeah. you know, th- thank you, Pastor, for s- sharing that because, you know, my wife has just been diagnosed with this. And, you t- you know, you take that on and you, you know, uh, 
that you take on their pain. Yeah. And and so you when when you step into a highly, you know, social setting where you're interacting with people and you you've got your your fuel tank is low, then um it's not a case of, you know, 10 compliments, you know, kind of outweighs the pain of one, you know, hard uh, reality that's presented to you. It all has an emotional draw. And, uh, um, and, and I think it's really incumbent upon pastors to be able to monitor that and be able to understand that, you know, it's human. And, and I don't believe the right response is, you know, well, just you know, once you're done preaching, go into the green room, jump into your car and go home. I, I, I just don't think that, that that's healthy for the pastor. don't think that's healthy for yeah. the church. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's just as unhealthy for the pastor to, to be the last person to leave, having heard every comment, every, you know, uh, update, difficult or otherwise, um, and, and, and go home thoroughly thoroughly depleted. Yeah, very good. I, I, um, I suspected this would happen is, uh, you're a goldmine of help and we're hitting our time limit. So Wes, you know, you're obviously a, a pastor with many decades of experience yourself. You've done doctoral work on pastoral burnout. This is your field. You're a clinical psychologist Obviously, you have your own practice in Southern California. For our listeners who aren't in California, what's the best way for them to access you? Obviously, your book, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. But if if having read your book or if they just need an intervention, what's the best way for them to seek you out for help? Well, the first thing I, I really want to recommend every ministry leader to get a copy of my book, Let's Talk About Ministry Burnout. Because what my research reveals is the, the prevalence of ministry burnout is far greater than the discussion about it. Jesus said, uh, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And I'm here to say burnout is not helping that. The statistics are not good. We have 50% of pastors burn out in the first seven years. And some of them exit ministry at that point. And Steve, when you think of like a, just a stewardship point of view, you know, you you have these these great people uh, preparing for ministry. You know, seven, eight years, sometimes nine years yeah. of, of uh, study years and money in it. Yeah, and then to only last seven years in the field. So, so um, my book, let's talk about ministry burnout, helps normalize the discussion and helps people connect with the fact that pastors are 100% human and if put under enough stress or boredom, because boredom is a, is a form of anxiety, um, pastors will start to make uh, errors of judgment and mistakes in their thinking. So let's get the discussion going. So let's talk about ministry burnout can be uh, gotten only on my website, drwestbevis.com. Um, so that's the first thing I think everybody should read the book and just come up to speed with with the research um, on what it takes to have well-being as a ministry leader. And then for your listeners out there, I, I consult with pastors all over America with, um, with the, the great 
benefits of Zoom and all the other platforms, I I have uh, the ability to be able to connect with pastors in every other state in, in America. Um, and uh, I'm happy to talk to any pastor who uh, who wants uh, wants to connect with somebody who's who is has uh, decades of ministry experience, so I understand their journey. But I also have the uh, the clinical bolt on uh, piece that can help them. So uh, even though I am in, I mean, if you've got listeners in Southern California, I'm here. We can sit down face to face. But uh, otherwise, I am available. Uh, over over Skype, Zoom, phone call, what have you, and I, I I work with pastors all over America. I think, as suspected, this is fantastic, Wes. Really great stuff. I think even just your posture of kindness is. Very evident. So thank you so much. Oh, well, I love, I love ministry leaders and I see so many leave the field injured. Yeah. And, yeah. and the unfortunate thing with pastors, when they leave the field injured, it creates a secondary injury. Yeah, that's right. Which can be yeah. even more wearing on the soul because they start to conceptualize themselves as I wasn't enough. Yeah. I was a failure in ministry. And so I want to, uh, I want to do what I can. And along with what you're doing, which is amazing with your podcast and your ministry at the local level and national level going all over America, speaking yourself, uh, I want to keep pastors healthy because if they're healthy, then their churches can be healthy. Their families can yeah. be healthy. Communities can be healthier. So, yeah. So let's jump into. Uh, if you're ready to brace yourself like an Aussie, let's jump into my gauntlet of anxiety questions. All right. All right. So we always start with the first question. I find it helpful for people to first pay attention to where chronic anxiety shows up in their body. So if you had to choose, where does anxiety start for you? As is it a spinning mind? A racing heart, tightening gut, or like a clenched muscles? Uh, I manifest physiologically sweaty hands. Yeah. Okay. And not. That's, I've never had that answer. This is great. That's new. Yeah. Like, uh, like if you were to take me up in a plane and say, uh, Dr. West, we're going to jump out of this plane. Don't worry, you have a parachute. I, there, there would be water dripping from my palms. Uh, the, the, the level of anxiety would be that high. Have you had a, a sweaty palm incident in ministry, just in a relational interaction or something like that? Oh, uh, yeah. Let me let me count them. Um, yeah, maybe one or two. <laughs> uh, I remember when I had a staff member say that they wanted to go off and start their own church, but they wanted to use our facility in order to do that. And that just, that was so anxiety producing because I felt like, you know, I wasn't enough that he was satisfied being a part of my ministry. I responded to that out of my anxiety. I responded very poorly. It's one of my great regrets in ministry. I, I handled that 
that uh, staff person really uh, in, in a way that to this day saddens me. I, I mm. but but it was I, I was in an anxious state, and when you're in an anxious state, the part of your brain that is responsible for nuanced thinking gets shut down, and then you become just very uh, survival oriented. And I yeah, very reactive. Yeah. Yep. All right, let's tackle this one. I, I think I'm, one of the I'm actually of... getting sweaty palms just thinking of that. <laughs> You're taking me <laughs> I'm back. So to sorry. That. No, no, that's fine. This is what it's yeah. all about. I, I'm 100% human. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, thanks for mentioning it. I, I do think it's true. You you re you revisit these encounters and you kind of relive them a little bit. It is a, almost acts like trauma. Mm. Yeah. Okay, let's talk um, generational traits. Wes, family systems theory, I think, gives us the gift of understanding that some traits have been handed down to us generation to generation. And so we do genograms and we do these tools to help us understand what are we holding? What cards have we been dealt? What is holding us? What has us in its grip that maybe we're not aware of? So like in my family system, uh, when I did my genogram, I, I didn't realize that cusses have to be right. We just, we always think we're right. If you're a cuss, you think whatever you say is truth. That was shocking to me that, first of all, that was true and that that other people, I don't know, it just was quite revealing. Would you be willing to share maybe one positive trait from your family of origin and one threat from your family of origin that that you carry in your leadership? One thing that benefits your leadership and one that might get in the way. Yes. One positive trait is uh, there is an entrepreneurial thing theme that runs through my family history. And uh, I have been the beneficiary of that. Um, and so being in ministry, being a visionary, being um, being willing to, to step into the great unknown, being willing to load up my family and move to the other side of the planet, even though I did not have a job, uh, even though I only had a working visa, um, so that entrepreneurial visionary was certainly a part of my dad's life, certainly a part of his dad's life and, and, and back before then. So that's yeah, a positive. Great. Yeah. All right. How about a threat? The threat is that, um, heart conditions is, is something that runs in my family. So at 24 years of age, I came into the kitchen to discover my father, who was 50 years of age, had collapsed of a massive heart attack and, and passed away. And I remember cradling him in my arms as a 24-year-old, thinking my dad's heart just, just gave out. That's on the back of his dad's heart gave out. His dad died of a heart attack. And... His dad before that died of a heart attack. In my own family uh, members, there have been cardiac events, not heart attacks, but cardiac events that required intervention. I'm the only one. And so you started out saying, well, Wes, you run marathons. And uh, yeah, indeed, th that is true. And that sounds very, you know, especially at 57 years of age to be running marathons seems to be, you know, quite quirky and unusual, uh, maybe in, in, in some people's minds, but I'm driven. I'm, I'm driven by that, that family history. And, uh, 
Um, and it, it does propel me to, to consider my fitness very much because I, I, mm. my dad loved Jesus. My dad was a, a principal of, of uh, Perth Bible College uh, for many years. He was a church planter. He was well-respected. And, and, but I learned in that that just because you love Jesus and are serving Jesus doesn't mean that you are above having a heart attack. Yeah. So I, I, I'm driven by that. And so um, I try to keep myself uh, as fit as possible, but that is a, that is a multi-generational family influence. And hopefully, you know, my, my intention is that I, I'm able to break that in, you yeah, know, as for me right. and my sons, I, w- I want them to, and, and they do, you know, they, they're Instagramming, you know, their friends going, my, my, my crazy dad's running a marathon right now. And, yeah. you know, 57, yeah. you know, he's doing his best time. Um, Maybe I am in a little way changing the trajectory of that multi-generational family process. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a powerful answer. So related to that, Wes, we, we have one more kind of invasive question like this. And then I think we have one that's a little more fun. I, I think one of the greatest sources of chronic anxiety comes from the story we tell ourselves that is antithetical to the gospel. Um, and I wonder, and I think it's very difficult to be aware of the story you tell yourself. You often need a third person listening to you or something like that. Um, so like in my life, uh, I think performance and productivity, you know, equals love. That would be a story I tell myself or, um, would you be able to name, I'm putting you on the spot, but you are, as it turns out, a professional in this field. So, I have confidence. Would you be able to name a story that you've told yourself that's antithetical to the gospel or that that you still tell yourself that you battle? Oh, yes. When, uh, where do I start? Um, uh, of course, you know, when I was experiencing burnout myself, I had that, that thought that would go through my mind of um, God's forgotten about me. Um, and I took on that sense of I'm the Jonah on this boat. I'm the pastor of this failing church. I'm the problem. Throw me overboard and and the church will be better off. And I just cannot believe my thinking descended to that place that, that uh, you know, it's me. I'm not enough. I am obviously not talented, not gifted enough, not, you know, not skilled enough in leadership. I'm just not enough. And... I mean, we could spend an hour unpacking just how spurious that thinking is. And, and, and if I can just take a neurological shift here, when you think things that are antithetical to, to the gospel, it releases within your, uh, um, your adrenal glands chemicals uh, like cortisol, which is a stress hormone, not a bad stress, not a bad hormone. They're put there by God for a purpose. But, but when you're thinking those type of spurious thoughts all the time, you're, you're influencing your adrenal glands to continue to excrete cortisol, the stress hormone. And that causes your um, immune deficiency. That means that you're more susceptible to getting sick. It uh, paves the way the, the longer you're under the, uh, uh, the, the, 
having that much cortisol running through your veins, it, uh, it paves the way for depression, more anxiety. The more anxiety you experience, it begets more anxiety. So not only, you know, is the thinking, thinking antithetical to the gospel, thinking can be antithetical to how your f- system is designed to work physiologically. There are other uh, neuro, neurosteroids that God has put in your adrenal glands to help you with things like neurogenesis, the formation of new brain cells. And um, when you are, uh, when you're caught up in this, this inaccurate, spurious thinking, um, you are killing brain cells, not stimulating the generation of new brain cells. And that's why, you know, I just, you know, at the end of the day, you know, default to, um, to what we know of God, that he loves us and that, and his love for us is not based on performance. It's not based on productivity. It's not based on, um, anything but the fact that we are his children and he loves us. And to hold on to that will, will actually cause the secretion of a neurosteroid in our adrenal system that will actually start to cause new brain cells to grow. And with more new brain cells, God can deploy those brain cells for his purpose in his kingdom. So I see it not only at a psychological level, but at a neurological level. And just think default to faith. And, uh, and don't trust your thinking, especially when you're burned out, because your thinking is not to be trusted. Yeah. Well, and that beautifully tees up the final question, which is all about love, because um, I, 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 I've attempted to write a theology of chronic anxiety. I, I thought it would be helpful in my book to help people understand the nature of chronic anxiety and how it works as a spiritual dark force. And one of the most powerful tools to fight chronic anxiety is unconditional love. You, you can't be filled with anxiety and filled with unconditional love at the same time. It feels to me like one is mm. always displacing the other. So to that end, Wes, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? When I am thinking about God accurately. When I am thinking that God's, God's love for me is not based on any behavior, but it's on the fact that I'm placed in his family. And I, you know, because that's a very experiential answer. And I have a compulsion within me to get back to the cognitive. Um, but I agree with what you said, that, that it's, it's hard to love and be anxious at the same time. And... It's a wonderful answer. So one of the things that I instituted in my life back in May 15th, 1981, was the practice of having a daily devotion every day, whether I felt like it or not. And to, and to write down my, my experience of reading the word in a journal. So I've done that for 1981. What are we up to? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 30 heading towards 40 years, I suppose. Pastors aren't strong with math. Let's just call it a long time. And uh, I have, I have uh, gotten into the practice of my opening line in every journal is, I want to thank you, God, that you love me. 
And it just kind of uh, sets the tone for the rest of what I write. Because sometimes, you know, I, you know, when we think that, you know, God's not answering our prayers the way we want, you know, that, you know, maybe he, maybe he loves us, but it sure has a funny way of showing it. But just to start from that point, thank you, God, that you love me. And then, uh, you know, to carry it forward, you know, it's, you know, somebody who is experiencing anxiety, one of a therapeutic intervention is, okay, well, let's just, you know, let, leave the anxiety there. Let's make a list of things that you can go and do and be a blessing to other people. Even, you know, you put the anxiety in your backpack, but, but, but go and do something that is loving and caring and, um, and a blessing to another person. And it's amazing how much, you know, their own personal anxiety will diminish for that moment while they're in the act of loving somebody else. And so it really is uh, the ultimate uh, therapeutic intervention. Yeah, that's good. Wes, thanks for coming on the show. Um, you are, I, I chose you for two reasons. We are in the Aussie era of the season, so it's nothing but Aussies for five weeks, which is just fun. But also because your work, it's so, it's, I, I'm sorry to say, it's desperately needed. So thank you for the work you've done. Thanks for coming on the show and what you shared with us today. Steve, it's an honor to be a part of your world. And uh, thank you that you're helping to get the word out that uh, burnout is uh, something to be, to be normalized. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I, in, in terms of anxiety, I have a philosophy that not all anxiety is bad. You know, sometimes God means for us to be anxious. You know, if you're, if you're signing a lease for a car you cannot afford and your finances are in shambles and you're feeling anxiety, you should feel anxiety. But, but that's acute anxiety. It's the chronic anxiety that the evil one can get a hold of and leverage um, for not good. And uh, so thank you for letting me be a part of your team. Uh, in, and part of your world, and I just champion what you do. Um, I just encourage all your listeners to continue to get the word out about uh, this podcast and uh, looking forward to catching up with you along the trail. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.